Welcome to the second episode of Notes on the Mind, a podcast exploring the outer edges of human experience through talking to people who have lived through severe mental health problems. I'm Beth. And I'm Tom. You may have noticed we've had a change of name since our first episode. We've included a link in the description that explains why we did this. This episode is a conversation with Ray Waddingham about her experience of hearing voices and having unusual beliefs. We hear about how these experiences started in childhood, her journey through the mental health system, finding solace and understanding in the Hearing Voices Network, and the work she does now to improve services for others. We talk quite a lot about diagnoses in this episode, as he's played a big part in Ray's experience. For anyone unfamiliar with the term, we mentioned BPD a number of times. This stands for Borderline Personality Disorder. We discussed some of the criticisms of BPD as a diagnosis, but if you want to find out more, we've included a link in the description to a collection of articles. We hope you enjoy the episode. My name is Ray, Ray Waddingham. I'm a wearer of many hats. I am a survivor of things that get called psychosis, the diagnosis of schizophrenia, trauma, um, the mental health system. I'm also a practitioner. I work within the Hearing Voices Network, um, open dialogue practitioner and trainer, and a oh, lover of cats, dogs, and real ale. <laughs> so, I mean, Hearing Voices, I'm conscious that some people listening might not have an understanding of the Hearing Voices groups. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, I mean, the basic sort of most simplest form, they're just spaces where people who hear voices, see visions or have, and other sort of related sensory experiences can come together, talk about it with each other without the fear of stigma or judgment or kind of being pathologized and just be. Mm. And that's it really. It's, It's a very basic approach. It's much more complex than that because any sort of approach where you try and get lots of different people in the room listening to each other has, you know, some challenges. And I guess the reason they exist is because if I was to go to my local pub or sit on the bus or maybe a coffee shop and go, hi, how are you doing? So I hear voices and have visions and sometimes, you know, I actually kind of feel like I'm an android. How are you doing? Mm. You might, you know, some pubs get a good conversation out of that, but <laughs> often people might kind of just feel a bit like, hey, oversharing, or that's a bit too much on the edge. I don't know how to respond to that. Yeah. So we've had to create these spaces where we can talk about these experiences as normal experiences, just as part of our lives. Um, my hope is that if we can change society enough, we won't need these special spaces because we can just talk to our friends and family. What you're describing, I think this is something that comes up a lot, is is it as much about your own experience or is it also the response that you're, you're fearful mm. of having from other people if you disclose those experiences, particularly with things uh, like hearing voices? And that kind of links as well, because I mean, it's one thing to have the experience But then when you start having it, you kind of, you're aware that it's a bad experience. It's mental ill health, Mm. blah, 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 schizophrenia, psychosis, demon possession, whatever. And that affects not only how you feel about your experiences, but it can influence the experiences themselves and Mm. form this kind of loop. There's a very radical element to the hearing voices groups too, which is less often spoke about and that they're in an emancipatory space. Mm. Um, And it's not about us being ill or having a mental health problem. It's just us having a difference. And that difference, like someone's sexuality, can cause real problems. (laughs) You can take on society's stigma or you could really struggle with your own feelings, but it doesn't have to be. And Mm. so there's a sort of a radical human rights-y, activist-y element to the groups, as well as this kind of more therapeutic social support. Well, kind of social model of 
of this ability, right? That if the rest of society didn't respond in the way you described when someone disclosed that they were experiencing these kind of things, then like you said, there wouldn't be a need for it. So in some ways, it's about society's response to that thing being disabling rather than necessarily the thing itself. I mean, it's tricky because sometimes voice hearing can be overwhelming and for me at least voices can come with visions they can come you know have beliefs around it and I have been so terrified at times so I'm not kind of glorifying it but that experience if I had people at the time that I could talk to if I didn't have it flagged as a as an illness and a schizophrenia type thing I wouldn't have had the extra crap to deal with So my kind of hope, I guess, for things like hearing voices groups is that people can come to them and not have to wade through the extra shit and deal with the experience as it is, recognising that it can change. Like some of the voices I hear, I've heard for years, but the way I relate to them and feel about them has really shifted. So they're not as disabling or overwhelming as they were 15 years ago. Is there like a specific incident that kind of stands out in your mind as the first indication that you were, I guess, experiencing mental health problems or that things had taken a different path? It's so hard at the age of 43 to go back because it's almost like having a story about a story. I don't know Mm. what's real anymore. And that's nothing to do with my voices and beliefs. It's, um, yeah, it's like looking through a very hazy window that's reflected a number of times. I think it's fair to say that my first experiences in sort of childhood that I can remember or my family can remember is of me being quite inward, uh, maybe carrying around cushions, you know, not feeling secure in the world. Like I'd have stomach aches um, and struggle to go to school in primary school. I think they took, my parents took me to see a psychologist because I was repeating things and they Apparently I was diagnosed with OCD when I was a child, which I only realised sort of maybe about 10 years ago. Um, It's not a feature for me now. But there was obviously signs that I was struggling. I had this fear that I was really ill, like cancer or something like Mm. that. I kept feeling like I wasn't real or the world wasn't real around me and began to see um, my reflection change in the mirror. So instead of seeing myself, I'd see a monster, but I cannot describe the monster. Like I've drawn it, it's just a squiggle. What I know and what I remember clearly is my response to that, which was not kind of massive terror, just this real sense that that was me, that that was my reflection and that I was a monster and a fear of other people finding out. And I must've been about sort of seven or eight at that time. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty intense because I, I was sitting in the room with my a friend of the time. It wasn't particularly nice, but I just saw my reflection, I think, in her sort of mirror on the bedside table. And it was it was weird that I accepted it. Like I didn't, like you'd figure a regular child would mm. see a monster, like my little daughter. I'm hoping if she sees a monster in a mirror, she'll come running to me and go, Mommy, there's a monster. But I didn't. I just was like, yep, that's me. Got to hide it. And then obviously I didn't know who was a monster and who wasn't. So the people around me became a bit frightening too. So I lived this kind of, it didn't overwhelm me. It wasn't like on my mind all the time, but I had this this sense that I didn't know who I could trust Hmm. and that I was a fraud that every good thing anyone said to me or about me wasn't about me because they didn't know that I was a monster. So I I was kind of faking it, which felt pretty lonely, I think. Yeah. But it was a metaphor. Like, imagine I've met 
the ideal youth worker and actually told them about this, they'd be like, there's something meaningful here, right? Mm. They wouldn't be, this is a, clearly a psychotic child. They'd be, this yeah. is a distressed child. What's, what, what is this telling us about her life and how she feels? Well, I guess at that age, you don't really know any different from whatever happens to you. So do you think, you know, when you pointed out that you didn't go and tell anyone, because small children, to some degree, just take things in their stride, surprisingly resilient in that respect and that they just sort of accept I suppose you know their surroundings and so do you think about the time did you have a sense that perhaps other children your age weren't experiencing that because you hadn't spoken about it did you, you wouldn't have known had no idea that I thought that maybe other people might be monsters too I guess suggests I hadn't thought it through that other kids go through that too I just kind of figured there must be monsters out there and mm. some people see it in the mirror and but going as far as like this is normal or natural mm. that those kind of concepts didn't really ring true for me at the time it was just the way it was mm. which is i guess like you say partly what children are like you just accept it but children generally when they're distressed or worried tell them mm. and that's the big thing that um, i didn't and working with kids in voice collective a youth project i helped set up in london for kids who have voices and visions and stuff like that I've always been massively humbled and amazed at the kids who actually speak out because, mm. yeah, that's awesome. They've already got a head start on me. It took me, I said nothing until I was like 18 or 19. And did things kind of escalate during that time or was it just kind of these things were kind of just part of your life over that 11 years or so? They kind of escalated, I guess. I mean, they did change and develop, so I guess. By the time I was a teenager, it wasn't a monster that I felt I was. Um, it was an alien, that I had an alien inside me. So it changed. It wasn't that I was an alien. It was that the alien was inside me. And I didn't know what it was doing, but I had a sense that it was really bad, that it was going to take over my body, hurt people. And I kind of had these strange experiences where, like, I'd put my hand through a wall and I'd feel like I could go through the walls of my house and that things weren't really real. And I felt it was the alien was kind of shifting my realities and of course, I didn't tell anyone about that because either they think you're crazy or they'll believe you. And both of those are not fun experiences. I kind of I self-harmed to cope with that as a way of kind of just releasing what I thought was part of the alien, mm. um, which sounds a bit weird as a reason to get into to using self-harm. And it became a strategy that was like my best friend. It was the thing that I felt was real in my life, the thing that I related to that saw me but I had a relationship with self-harm it felt authentic and it kept me going during those years and then when I got to university that's when things started to kick off because I think probably during my late teens I started to hear people talking about me but I thought it was people in my class or people on the train I didn't realize it wasn't people people mm. I think it was at university I had like the best time went to Sheffield went out drinking a lot had a lot of partying did some study, just a little bit, philosophy and psychology. <laughs> Had some really cool friends, was part of the Rock Music Society. So again, with the partying. And I'd have like amazing times and then just lock myself away for the ones where I was really struggling. So I was kind of like public face, yay. Mm. Private face, err. And I started to get very worried about um, the alien and the experiment. I started to feel like I was being watched and I began to hear... Um, three guys talking about me and 
it was at a time when everyone else in the house was asleep. So there was no way that they could have physically been there, which is a weird thing. Felt a bit like I was being punked or something. It was it was because mm. I could clearly hear them, but everyone else was asleep. And it was really disorientating. I felt like super defeated after checking the house for the source of them, like where are they hiding? I remember going back into my sleeping bags or staying over at a mate's house and just kind of curling up and, and just going to sleep and just hoping that they'd go away, which felt like this moment of defeat because I was just mm. like, even though I was studying psychology, I'd done my abnormal psych module. I did not go, hey, I am having what they call auditory hallucinations. Mm. I was hearing people talking about me. I just didn't know where they were coming from. Yeah, but you did try to rationalize it, right? It's quite interesting that mm. like sometimes when I've heard people who have had kind of unusual experiences or are, are having unusual experiences are talking about them, they kind of just integrate it into their way of seeing the world. But but mm. you, you were experiencing that and you were saying, well, I can't see the person speaking, so where are they? And you're going mm. to look for them. That's, it's quite interesting that even though you'd had various experiences since being quite young, you were kind of questioning it and interrogating it. Yeah, but in that way that I never believed that they weren't people, I just didn't yeah. know where the people were. Um, mm. And what kind of happened after that is instead of going, oh, they're voices, they're not real, I was like, they're part of the experiment. Um, the aliens in me, I'm hearing people describing what I'm doing, talking to each other. They must be seeing me through the cameras that must be in my flat and everywhere because I could hear voices everywhere. So they've got to be part of this really powerful global conspiracy. Um, hell knows who and how. <laughs> I had no idea of why. The only thing I think of is that when I was 14, I got this alien inside of me and this must be now I've moved from home. Mm. I've had to amp up the surveillance and oh my God, that was terrifying. Because I was like, is the people at uni, are they my friends or are they part of this? Mm. Are they stooges? Because I started to integrate that into it. Like, um, so are they real or have they been paid to be there? Is How's this experiment working? And I'd listen to the voices, like, because they never spoke to me, but I could tell their voice, their tone would change occasionally. So I'd be doing something. And if one of them changed their tone, I'd be thinking, are they trying to communicate something extra to me? Is that one on my side? Am I at risk? You know, what's going on? And I, like, initially, it was okay. I managed to still do some things, go out see my mates. I was in a band. I could sing on stage still. That was one of the times I felt better. Mm. I'd go to clubs and dance. And best strategy for voice hearing in my youth was to just go to a heavy metal club, dance. <laughs> Lots of noise. Hours, yeah. It wasn't the noise so much. It was interesting. It was because if I play loud music, the voices always shout over it. Okay. They're like a competition. <laughs> But the music, it just inhabits your body and you dance and it's focus and energy and power. Mm. And I felt strong and I didn't mm. care about the voices or the experiments. But you can't live in a club. Um, apparently there is everyday life <laughs> and lectures really slipped. I dropped out. <laughs> I could have lived in a club, maybe. That's where I went wrong, isn't it? But on my eating got more restricted. I got more worried about being poisoned. I wasn't washing because I was worried about cameras in the bathroom and eventually got to the point where my self-harm was pretty out of control because obviously I was dealing with so much and it wasn't helping that somehow, and there's many stories of how this happened, I ended up with my parents coming to, my parents and my sisters coming to move me out of my little bedsit in Sheffield and take me back home and I ended up getting admitted. So was there a point that you started to tell someone that all this was happening? 
Not at that point, no. <laughs> I think people saw the outsides of it. I had a good friend at uni that had also had experience of self-harm and she recognised that in me and the lows. And she got me to talk to my GP, who was, first one was awful, just handed me a book on depression and said, read this and come back if it, oh you know. My God. So, um, so yeah, I, I checked all the boxes for depression, woohoo, um, didn't go back. But my friend dragged me back to this other doctor who was known to be good around the mental health stuff. And he was lovely. Um, got me in to see a psychiatrist who was meh, okay. Uh, put me on antidepressants, got a sort of student counsellors, and then they got me into psychology to do CBT, woohoo, anxiety, which was all right, some useful things. But I think it was the psychologist that flagged that things weren't great because she knew I wasn't looking after myself. And she said something around, we're worried that you're at risk of, or I'm worried that you're at risk of uh, harm to self, not through self-harm, but through self-neglect. Mm-hmm. Um, I think something's going on that you're not talking about. And either you ring your parents and go home, or I'm going to look to section you or something mental health assessment mm. and so i obviously chose option a yeah which you know same outcome i ended up in hospital for about eight months but at least she flagged it and when you were talking to like mental health professionals and discussing things like anxiety and depression were you seeing that as something quite distinct and discreet from these other experiences you were having like because it sounds like all these things that were going on and 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 the things you were hearing and the and the beliefs you were having you were kind of incorporating them into quite a kind of coherent narrative about what was happening in your world but it's, it doesn't sound like you you saw those things as mental health problems they they were just yeah they were just the world I was in so I, it was quite easy for me to go and speak about inverted commas was my depression or my anxiety because I felt really low and I felt really anxious. It was just the stupid CBT worksheets where you meant to say what's making you feel anxious. And I could say, oh, going on the bus, I could say leaving the house. But the bit about why, that's not so easy to talk about. Mm. Luckily, the kind of worksheet-based approach didn't really delve So I could kind of limp through the uh, 10 traps of thinking or whatever and go, that's quite interesting. Mm. But yeah, it's kind of funny that I spent a fair amount of mental health services not talking about the things that were really troubling me. And do you think if someone asked you at that point, like, do you think if your CBT therapist had asked you, are you hearing voices? Do you think you would have been able to tell them? It's the question, isn't it? Because I wouldn't have said yes to voices because they weren't voices. Mm. Actually, I think if people had asked me stuff when I was a kid, yes. I think I would have um, if they asked in the right way. What happened in the end is I saw a doctor, I think, who actually asked me and said, you know, are you hearing or seeing something that maybe is worrying you or, or, or some stuff that's going on that you're not talking about? You know, he asked in this quite expansive way mm. that allowed me then just to go, yes, <laughs> and tell everything. And I mean everything. But you know, like, if you've not spoken about something to anyone ever before, and it's huge, and you've been dealing with it for ages, when you start talking about it, it comes out weird, because you don't know the words. And so I think I sounded a bit crazy, inverted commas, because it came out in a bit of a jumble. What's worse, though, is like a few years in the psychiatric system, and I was really good at talking about these, but I didn't talk about them as experiences anymore. I flagged them as, so my delusions, my hallucinations, 
ideas of reference. You know, I learned how to talk about them in a really sanitized way mm. that was really overly medicalized, made me a really good patient, but did nothing for my understanding. I kind of wish I'd kept the aliens because there was a lot more to work with. Mm. <laughs> I had to sort of had to reclaim a bit of my raw experience again in order to understand it. I got so frightened of the voices because I think some doctor told me that if I had any more relapses, I'd lose brain function and I was already losing it. So I got quite freaked out that, yeah, that I was having cognitive decline or something. And I was struggling to think, like if you'd have met me back then, we wouldn't have had this conversation. I think often when people hear me, they kind of go, oh, well, you're very eloquent, Ray. Not everyone says that, actually, but some people do. You can't possibly like be like X, Y or Z because yeah. they don't speak like you do about it. Like, you should have met me. I, I wouldn't speak about it. I think I remember being on the ward once and someone said I should get a shower. And I was so used to following the voices and everything and so confused. I just got in the shower with my clothes on. I remember trying to cook and going through these stupid occupational therapy things where they, they try and give you the basic skills back and, and just walking around in circles, being really confused about how do you get a pan down and, and what, what do you put in first? It really disabled me, both the voices and the the stuff that was on my mind, but also the extent of the medication I was on. I kind of lost a massive part of my humanity in, in all of that, the little spark that makes me me. Yeah, it was definitely the zombie years. And how, how long was that, that period? First admission was 1988. No, sorry, 1998. Otherwise, it would have been like 12 or something. Um, I think my last sort of admission in that period was probably about 2005 but I had about 26 27 admissions in that kind of five six year period initially like really long ones so the eight months and six months and then it'd be more like a few weeks because I'd stop my medication things would go a bit weird end up back in hospital get back on it go out again stop it I was I was sort of bouncing around and became the revolving door and it was weird because actually going back into hospital felt like partly familiar, like I knew the staff, I knew the place. There's lots of fun tales I can tell and some lovely staff members and some hideous staff members, but it was like, this was my life. I also felt shamed whenever I came back. It was like walking through the doors. I was like, sorry, I'm back again. Like you failed somehow or something. Yeah, massively. But it, I'd never questioned that this was, this was just my new reality. I never thought there was anything beyond it. And I don't think anyone believed I'd get beyond it because they stopped talking about getting back to university, getting your life back. You know, that initial optimism waned, mm. um, which is devastating, I think. There was a point at which, because I tried to kill myself so many times because I'd lost hope, that I think people were starting to think it might be kinder if I didn't survive. I've talked with some, with some of my family that had felt that at the time. And given where things were at, I actually don't blame them for that because every phone call they got, they didn't know if it was going to be the, the phone call where I'd something terrible had happened to me. Do you think that hopelessness was in part because kind of the, the explanations and, and, and treatment in inverted commas you were getting from the medical system just wasn't leading you anywhere other than kind of in and out of hospital? Yeah, I think it was a lack of connection. Like, because I was so dehumanized at that point and like, I didn't feel a human being. I, I'd kind of stepped away or found a gap between me and my friends. Some of them really tried to hang on to me, but my life had gone so differently. And I had this idea, like the thing called schizophrenia that I was diagnosed with, it felt just like the monster and the alien, this thing inside me that I can't control that tells 
tells me I'm bad, that I'm flawed, that I'm wrong. And only these wise, beautiful medical professionals can do something about it. Mm. But they can't really do more than just beat it down occasionally. And I could see the hurt that was causing my family. So, yeah, a mixture of this kind of feeling not like a human being and part of the human race anymore. Having no hope for the future, knowing that my life is pain and I'm causing pain. And this sense that it's never going to change. Which sucks. Yeah. It's the sort of time that my family, when we gather and we talk about the hospital years, as we call them, it's usually quite an emotional time because my family had so much trauma from that period because they weren't getting positive messages either. If anything, because what got added to my labels as I wasn't recovering beautifully (laughs) was borderline personality disorder. So I had not only schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, but this extra PD label, um, which meant that my family, instead of getting a a kind of empathic response Mm. for quite a while, got this nasty, you're too involved, you're not involved enough, it's your fault. Yeah, it's grim, isn't it? Yeah, it's awful. Luckily, I managed to ditch that label after a while. I got out of the system, and this is the good part of it, because this, this oh, it sucks, actually, because I, I work with a lot of people in the mental health system now, and I'm doing my best to try and help people create more you know, responsive and empathic and human rights-based approach. But what I received, despite the good people there, was overwhelmingly crap, with little sparkles of goodness. If I'd have stayed in the system, I wouldn't have got out of it, because I'd, it triggered me. I'd had... Um, Part of the reason I had all these experiences is some had some childhood trauma outside of my family that I hadn't found a way to talk about. And I talked about it a bit in the hospital, which is why I got the BPD label. Self-harming young girl who has a trauma history, ticks all the boxes, mm. a slightly misogynistic framework. But there was no support because I was too psychotic. So we were kind of really stuck. They stuck me in a therapeutic community. I was too psychotic for that. Ended up getting bounced back. It was a mess. And so I needed to get out of there. Luckily, I joined the Hearing Voices group whilst I was still in the hospital bounce back kind of system. And that group, it was the Leicester Hearing Voices group, met at an adult education centre. And it was just, I mean, it wasn't perfect. There was people from different ages, like I was quite young, by about 20 years, the youngest in the group. Uh, And it wasn't full of like exciting activities or anything. The group it's just a group we sat around, chatted, how are you, check in, support each other. But what was amazing about it is that there were human beings in the group who heard voices and had stuff. And some of them believed in schizophrenia, some of them believed in spirits. Um, you know, there's different meanings that were around. And it was the first time I'd been exposed to different meanings and other people. First time I could talk and be listened to about my voices. And it took me a while to do that, but first time I'd heard other people talk about it and uh yeah it just gave me it's like a travel brochure you know it just opened up this possibility I went and saw someone talk about their experiences on the stage in the trust so in the NHS and they were out and I was like maybe I could do that and then the voices and everything else like no (laughs) but over time things started to shift I got into music again with the group I started to get into training with the group we went to the pub together we got to karaoke with a woman's group that I was part of then and I started to develop a network got a relationship all of this happened alongside the tail end of the hospital years I managed to drop out of the system for a bit get some housing with a voluntary sector organization 
and get the practical support rounds and some stable, useful support that could just be with me and not have this agenda of changing me. But we're, we're happy to get my benefits with me, do the shopping, do the practicals, which I was struggling with, and helped me find friendships and things. And then I came back into the system, but managed to get a, um, a second opinion. It was like for the first time someone listened to context, because the thing about the personality sort of label is they've already decided what the framework is you're fitting into before you do it. So if you're feeling suicidal, it's because of your attention seeking. If you're self-harming, it's this. It's, it's all about this framework. If you don't like a nurse, it's not because of anything they've done. It's you. Yeah. Ugh, it's a trap. And for the first time in ages, somebody actually was listening to the context and the story and, and believing me again. And at the end, she said, yeah, no, not personality disorder. Not that I believe in that construct, just saying. <laughs> Sounds like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. Different doctors would come with a different thing. You know, I'll say schizoaffective. And then slowly I managed to edge my way out of the system and go with the voluntary sector for a bit and get this good support and get housing, get safe again. Because the whole hospital system had just re-traumatized me and triggered me. Like being held down is not a good thing to do to anyone, let alone a survivor of trauma. I went off meds. Uh, I withdrew over the course of a few years. I was relatively sensible about it. But then, and this was jumping forward a few years mm -hmm. when I was working at Minding Camden, starting to question the labels and recognizing my own history and working with my voices a bit more. In order to work, I kind of slowed down the meds a bit, you know, take it a little less or maybe mm -hmm. take it in the middle of the night instead of in the morning so I could get up for a meeting. And when I'd finally come off all of the tablets, which and there were lots, I had quite a big response to that, ended up really struggling. And the psychiatrist at the time was not a happy bean. And eventually she added the BPD label back in for a bit. I think she was genuinely really struggling. Some appointments, she seemed quite together. And we were just talking about stuff and I'd go away with the schizoaffective label. Some appointments, she just looked sad and lost and a bit hopeless. And then I'd end up with a schizoaffective plus BPD. And she said to me, you know, why won't you let me help you? I asked her about the diagnosis and she said, well, with someone with your history, how could you not have BPD? You know, you've been through so much. It's interesting what you said about how the doctor was struggling. And it does sometimes feel like when we work in services, it feels like often, yeah, the people who services are struggling to support. And that should probably be seen on behalf of the services rather than the individual. Borderline personality disorder or other personality disorders are the diagnoses of choice. Mm -hmm. So it more reflects, I think, as you said, the services are sometimes struggling to diagnose yeah. them with something else or to help them. I mean, we've got to the point where we see it as being, you know, these personality disorder diagnoses being linked with normally some childhood trauma. But they're not making the link so much that then the care is sort of trauma informed and is seen as an understandable response mm. rather than being erratic and unreasonable which is mm. unfortunately how those diagnoses are seen in services. I think there's a bit about, there's a victim blaming element to it. There's kind of also this idea of what a good patient and a good victim should be, a good survivor. So if you're too much in any way, then it's like there's something wrong with your personality. It's you that's in this. When I was seen as having schizophrenia, I was like, I remember coming back from A&E after a suicide attempt in hospital this overwhelming care that I got from some of the nurses, like real genuine nurturing care, because they recognised how distressed I was. The same one with the BPD label. If you do that again, you're out of here. Mm. We'll discharge you. It's just, I kind of, I kind of wonder whether 
some of it's just the sense that like there's not enough support and humanity in the system for the workers that they end up pushing as a way and and if they if we poke or ask for too much or or they feel it relates to some of their own traumas or own stuff then the response is this push back and it's like you're the bad person stay away from me and we we've tripped over a line or something yeah and it kind of almost kind of lets staff not lets them off the hook but it, it gives them a way of rationalizing and justifying a fairly uncompassionate response and it creates a culture where the one or two staff members on the ward that actually do want to listen and be with you will be seen as being manipulated that we're splitting the team you know mm. all this stuff and what there really is it's a nice nurse or like healthcare assistant or someone that's just compassionate mm. and compassion becomes the thing you have to withhold from people mm. can you imagine a different scenario in our utopia where mm-hmm. the nhs is well funded mm-hmm. and there are the types of support that you found in hearing voices that existed within the sort of formal healthcare system that there was just more you know there was more psychologically informed approach from the wards can you see a place where detention in hospital under the mental health act could ever have been a positive experience or is it just inherently there's something too clinical about being on a ward when you're having those experiences that just isn't ever going to help oh so much in that question I think leave the mental health act to the side for a second. I'd love to come back to that. But if we think about wards, could they ever be positive? I think they have been positive for me at times in some ways. And I still think now if I felt like I was too much for my husband, for my family, I would prefer to go into the ward. And that's saying something because I hate the ward, <laughs> but mm. I, I need somewhere to go if things are really overwhelming because I don't want to... Yeah, my family and friends can cope with a lot. They're a great support network. But if I went back to where I was years ago, I think the ward would be a place I'd go to. The problem is it's set up like a ward. This isn't medical Mm. stuff. We don't need ward rounds. We don't need it to be a ward. We don't need Mm. like the mental health nursing profession is so interesting because it's not really nursing. Like my husband's a mental health nurse, so I can kind of say it without offending the universe, hopefully. But most experienced nurses I've spoken to really struggle to go, what is it to be a nurse? There's a beautiful quality of nursing, which is about being with, because, you know, the, the idea that you can't fix things sometimes. And actually, they could be guides. Um, mm. But we've chosen to sort of have this medicalized nurses training where we're not training nurses on how to sit with someone in a crisis, really. We're quite a technological in- interventionist. Mm. The whole framing as a hospital and wards and health has kind of led us down this path where we've created a system that isn't fit for purpose so yeah it can be positive but it could be so much different if we just had like crisis houses or spaces sanctuaries where people were guides and we maybe did have the use of medication and various things as an option but we had everything else as well oh i want to go to that system but then you've got the mental health act and this is so tricky because whenever you talk about actually what happens if we don't have the mental health act how you know, if we don't compulsorily detain people, what people often say is, but what about the time where someone might hurt themselves, hurt someone else? You know, we need this because of X, Y, Z. What about this scare story? Mm. And it makes it really hard to go back a bit and go, what if we had a society that didn't mess people up? What if we had um, less racism so people weren't kind of naturally suspicious of, of statutory services? What if statutory services were kind of very welcoming, dialogical, responsive, and 
community-based and that people didn't run away from them? What if they actually met the needs when they were there? Because <laughs> mm. what seems to happen is the Mental Health Act is almost like putting a tiny little plaster on a gaping wound. Mm. You know, it's it's better than nothing. Like, it's, it's there as a society. We're trying to just try and stick things together, but it's stopping us dealing with the real issues. So, mm. yeah, if we got rid of the Mental Health Act tomorrow, I imagine there'd be a lot of really crappy stuff happen. Mm. But I don't want that to be the reason that we keep no. it. And I think we can move towards another way of doing it. And we still might have some form of mental health act, but we wouldn't use it regularly. Mm. Really extreme, sort of very occasional, very short. Just going back to your experiences during that time, you were kind of in and out of hospital and then then finding something that did work or did kind of help you move forward in in a very different way for the Hearing Voices group. Throughout that time, how was your kind of relationship to the things you were experiencing? How was that changing? Were were the voices there throughout the whole time? Were they coming and going? Was your idea of what that was as an experience changing as a result of interacting with the medical mental health system? It's interesting because I think the idea of myself as someone with schizophrenia was very static. That took a while to change. And the idea of my voices as as a symptom of my brain dying, again, that was pretty fixed. The medication worked really well for me. Like it, when I took it, it got rid of most of my voices, mm. my beliefs as well. Like the ward staff would say they knew when I was inverted commas well because I'd have a bounce in my step. But when I wasn't, I'd be like tortured and yeah so medication in a way gave me that bounce back because it gave me some space but it obviously also put a giant blanket on me but it meant that I couldn't figure out my voices in any different way because it was all suppressed Mm. (laughs) so it was really useful but it kind of got me stuck I think what happened when I joined a hearing voices group is I got interested in other people's experiences because I was so terrified of mine that I started to see the sense in their stuff as they were discovering it and the different frameworks they were using, the different relationships they had with their voices. I was part of their journeys, but I was still very holding on tightly to mine because I was scared of going back in hospital for another few years. Mm. I didn't want to rock the boat. But every so often I'd have a time where things would just come up and I'd end up overwhelmed again. And it was being able to talk about those times in the group that really helped. Because instead of people going, did you take your medication, Ray? You know, (laughs) should you need to take your medication? They were like, so what was going on? You know, I was like, oh, yeah, I was trying to do this course. And they're like, whoa, how did you feel about that? I'm like, oh, I was freaking out. And I was blah, blah, blah. And they're like, huh. I was like, yeah. And it started to kind of realize that, Some of the things I was doing were triggering my voices and my beliefs, which gave me an inordinate amount of power, really. Because if you can make something worse, you can kind of affect it. You've got a relationship with it. Mm. And very slowly, I started to realize that if I can do things that make it worse, I can probably do things that make it easier. All those stupid mindfulness and Mm. relaxation and... (laughs) grounding that everyone was talking about in hospital began to make a bit of sense to me because they were tools it changed more when I became the manager of the London Hearing Voices Project because I got more exposed to um, critical ways of seeing things, different cultural approaches to voice hearing. And that really opened my mind up. My relationship with my voices changed most, though, was when I came off the meds and had a big explosion and was really struggling. I had lots of wrangles with psychiatry, obviously, at that point. It was really horrible. I couldn't work but found a way back and had to get myself into therapy to process some of the stuff that was coming up and was lucky enough because I was working that I could afford therapy. 
And that's where I started to have to form a relationship with them. Because if I, I could take the meds and get rid of them again, <laughs> but I didn't want to do that. So I kind of, it's like you're stuck in, a, in an island with loads of people that you don't particularly like and don't really want to be around, but you're there and what are you going to do about it? Yeah, that's when things started to shift dramatically for me. When you start to have or change the relationship with the voices, you know, how did you start to sort of find meaning in them? Or mm. did you start to think of them as sort of metaphorical for different times in your life or different emotional experiences you were having? I played with all kinds of ideas. So I read uh, Roman Escher's Making Sense of Voices book when I was still um, facilitating a hearing voices group in my local area. So I got kind of interested in this idea of metaphorical meaning, what they might represent, mm. but it didn't really hit home for me particularly and I did a few courses like talking with voices the voice dialogue stuff blah 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 and so I'd got loads of sort of different frameworks all of them were a bit meh like yeah my voices don't really represent someone they're not yeah so the way that seems to work for me is to think of it a bit like artwork or paintings you know there are meanings there but they're not concrete you can see it in lots of different ways and it's what's useful so i think that the alien might have been a representation of the the abuse there were other things it might be too but that's quite helpful i don't want to think of it as a representation of the abuser because i don't want to be carrying an abuser around with me Mm -hmm. that's crap because the alien used to give me commands and was quite a, a nasty voice the three that talk about me all the time oh people have come up with all kinds of explanations for that and you know, maybe it's about this sense of exposure, of not feeling safe, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. The more I've done this, the less I care about the metaphors. Mm. And the more I'm thinking about what's my relationship with them like. And I'm like, there are three guys that are talking about me all the time, never talk to me. They're quite concerned with my safety these days. Like they think that people are going to hurt me. They're trying to keep me silent. Okay, so how am I going to deal with that? I just need to chill them out a bit because if I listen to them all the time, I'd never leave the house and I'd never speak to anyone. So they're just like three weird old men. It's <laughs> 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 kind of following me around being a bit kind of naysay. And, um, you know, I just have to kind of go, yeah, get your point. It is a bit risky. I'll be all right. So it's a relationship. And then thinking, well, what's got them worried at the moment? You know, what is it in my environment or how I'm feeling that's kind of poking them? And then I can either settle them down, I can distract myself, I can ground myself if it's my own anxiety, or I can change the situation. You know, there's, there's all these things I can do. I've kind of just accepted them as part of my life, I guess. Mm. The more I go into metaphorical meanings, the more irritated they get as well, because they're like, hey, <laughs> not the three, they don't talk to me, but some of the other voices that do, don't particularly like being described as voices, you know, as if there's some kind of hierarchy of reality and my reality wins. But we kind of like neat narratives for things, don't we? Neat explanations for things. And it made me think about discussions we've had previously about things like psychosis being like a kind of dream state. And in some ways, when you were talking about trying to kind of pin down a meaning for it and actually it being more like a piece of art in that you can interpret different meanings, it feels a bit like when people talk about interpretations of dreams, right? And some people have like very definite, oh no, this dream means this. And But actually, when you think about a dream, it's kind of a random mess of things. And there probably is some meaning in there, but it's, but it's often mixed up with you know some random themes from your day and so it's really interesting that's a really interesting way of looking at it to, to say well there may be meaning in there but it's not necessarily like comprehensive and coherent but as well if you think about say if i asked you about your families what is the metaphor the meaning in your families <laughs> or in your work you know what does, what does it represent yeah. does it make any sense 
I mean, yeah, there is the way that we relate to people in our lives and the things that we choose as our careers. Yeah, they're full of meaning and full mm. of different stories we could tell about that. So there are metaphors, there is symbolism there. But it's a nonsensical question in a way. But I think part of the problem is for me is this idea of psychosis and schizophrenia as this other experience that's separate from everyday life, whereas this is my everyday life. Mm. It sounds like you almost have to develop specific strategies and like do new voices still appear now? Sometimes. So new voices tend to come when I'm in a, an unusual sort of altered state. So after I had my baby, I was fine for three months and then ended up in a really bad place. At that point, I had some new experiences, but they were tended to be linked to the beliefs that I was getting stuck in because I have this long running belief that I'm an android, not mm. fully human, which makes sense in the context of my life and everything else. If you watch Blade Runner, mm-hmm. implanted memories, it all, it all makes sense, given that actually sometimes it's nice not to be human and not for this stuff, my trauma, whatever, not to be real. But having a baby really messed with that. And then I was very worried that I was an android and I didn't know if I was her mum and how did I have a baby and was I sent to hurt her or help her and... And so I got some voices around that that I can't really describe, but it was this sense again of being wired up and connected. But yeah, so this life still catches me off guard sometimes. And so I've got all of this like sense in how I deal with my voices. Voices are never my problem these days. It's the, the challenges I get is the beliefs that can get very intense. Whereas the voices, I've got enough strategies and ways of relating to them that it's just like having a really challenging family that you kind of wish you didn't invite to dinner sometimes, but <laughs> they're kind of there and you can't really send them away. And with the, the belief that you said came back after your child was born, because you had a di- this new sort of support network in place and different strategies, did you feel like you had a sort of go-to strategy to deal with those as well like did you feel more able to talk to people about what you were experiencing compared to when you were at university when it was like the unspeakable thing i mean i hid it initially i I talked to my husband about it but then we were so caught up with the idea that i'm actually quite sorted (laughs) that neither of us went okay let's 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 have a proper chat about this it took a while and i think it was me feeling really low that meant that i was willing to tell the psychiatrist i was seeing about it but again it was like would have been so much nicer if I'd have had the forethought to just go, I'm just going to speak to someone sooner rather than later. But I waited until I couldn't hold it in anymore. My daughter was being walked by my dad outside of the mental health unit. I got really freaked at letting her out of my sight and was like, someone's going to hurt her or my dad. And so I was waiting in this waiting room, getting more and more stressed. This poor doctor opened the door and was like, how are you doing, Ray? Hoping she was going to discharge me. And I was like, <laughs> in tears. And just, yeah. In those moments, it's like the, the kind of groundedness that I have. Because I, I deal with unusual beliefs most of the time. I live with them. I navigate around them. It's okay. But it's the times where the belief feels, it's not even that it's more intense. It's just the existence of that belief doesn't chime well with regular reality. And it's really important to know which is which. Like most of the time they can exist simultaneously. And I don't mind, which is true. Mm. Like maybe I'm an android, maybe I'm not. Who cares? I'm still here. But around motherhood and if my daughter was safe or not, I couldn't like just let them be. What I had to do is work out which one was real and that sends me down a, a rabbit hole. So I guess I'd love to say that. I was like, yeah, I've learned all the tricks now. Some situations, I guess I do, I can feel the pull to go down the rabbit hole and I'm just mm. like, well, let's let it go. 
actually this that was a difference in how it was for me this time because I knew that I couldn't shouldn't follow these thoughts like I was freaked out about whether she was safe or not and I'd be sitting in my house looking outside going you know that car is that going to come are they attacking are they going to attack do I have to protect her what's happening who's communicating with me blah 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 very overwhelmed and obsessed with it all yet when talking to the crisis team, when they were trying to rationalise me out of it, I kind of, and I, I'd get worse the more people tried to convince me that it wasn't real. I knew that I needed them to stop doing that because mm. it was just getting me to go deeper down the hole and explain how it could be real. I think having my husband know his way around this stuff too really helped because he actually told them to back off and was like, you know, stop, stop this. Because <laughs> mm. he knows and, and I had taught him that I need to believe that it's possible that this is true. I need to get back to this state where it's okay for it to be true and not true at the same time, this this balance. And the minute you attend to one of these, the other one kind of bites back. Mm. It's a really crappy answer to your question though, isn't no, it? No, it's really interesting. No, it's not. I think because it's without without sounding like a CBT therapist, <laughs> back to that, it's like the tolerance and the sort of acceptance of uncertainty and, and not, not knowing to some degree. Or mm. Because I think as human beings, sometimes we do feel really drawn towards certainty and like wanting to know exactly mm. what something is and having an explanation. And it seems like a lot of sort of mental health experiences getting to that point where we can accept the existence of either like multiple experiences or that all of them might are a reality seems to always be a sort of better way to go. Mm. That kind of makes me think as well that, so this whole experience is a great training for me as a practitioner, because one of my main approaches these days is open dialogue, where tolerance of uncertainty is pretty much the mantra. For me, as a survivor, not knowing is the way that I survive and accepting that I do not know around my own experiences. And so I found a sort of a strategy of working with people that means, yeah, I've been kind of trained in that for years. And so I'm less likely to need to know what's going on for other people. I'm more likely to be open to it's not my business to fully understand everyone in the universe and it's there to be with them on their journey and be useful in any way that I can and create a space for people but I don't have to claim other people's experiences and and pin it down. Can you tell us a bit more about the work you do with services and stuff now and, and particularly about open dialogue and kind of how you feel I guess you're able to pass on lessons from your experience to help services support other people? Yeah. I guess how I use my experience is weird because I'm both a practitioner and a mad person. And so the two identities are the same for me. But it means that if you come in one of my trainings, we're like, la, 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 the approach, tolerance of uncertainty. And then, ah, yeah, this is important to me because I remember this time in when the crisis team came around, when, blah, blah, blah. The, the, the stories and the ideas from all different parts of my life just interweave. But I think this is the way forward. Open dialogue is so interesting because actually what's underneath it is this philosophy. Um, so it's a, a worldview about what is it that is distress, this idea that distress is between us, not within us, mm -hmm. which is like freaks some people out, but I love it as a concept. It's this disconnection, this, this lack of meeting with each other that makes unusual experiences distressing, the sense that we're going through it alone. And then there's a treatment approach that matches that, that creates spaces for dialogue, that kind of has some structures in it that makes it possible for people to really hear each other, for this uncertainty to be okay. Mm. And there's some very specific things we do in, in network meetings that facilitate that. So that's the practice. So philosophy, practice, 
and then you've got the system, which is a system that supports the practice, that supports the philosophy. Mm. Um, because you can't do this kind of work if you've got a very risk-averse culture, mm. because not knowing and risk-averse just kind mm. of don't sit well together. So open dialogue is like a system-wide approach, a really systemic, really cool system approach that's also got a philosophy and some practices with it. It's actually the art of listening and mm. trying to be with people and... Yeah, have some transparency, all these things that we know are good. Yeah. But we've we've developed systems and ways of not doing it. Just thinking back about what you've said about your experience over the years, that you've kind of gone through so many kind of, I guess, iterations of kind of understanding what you've been going through, but also those experiences have been changing and evolving, you know, over the course of your life. Have you ever thought about how you might like talk to your seven-year-old self about that initial experience and, and how that might change the path that you then went on? Yes and no, kind of, because that almost like puts me down this way of like, you know, sliding doors moment. Yeah. If if I had if been able to go back to my seven-year-old self, what would have happened probably is I'd have a much better time at school, felt much more open, I'd have dealt with the trauma. I wouldn't be in the mental health field. Mm. Like, you know, I'd, I don't know what I'd be, but I wouldn't be married. I wouldn't have my child. I wouldn't have done what I've done. And it feels almost like a waste of, of brain energy. But what I do think is what what would I like for other children? You know, what about my, my nieces, my nephews, my daughter? If they start to struggle, what do I want them to be able to hear? And it's easy. I want them to know that this is possible. So I want this to be stuff around there. And children's TV is full of voices and visions. It's brilliant. Mm. Kiri and Lou, one of my favourite toddler shows that my daughter used to love, it has a calm in a voice, which is very, very sophisticated in terms of representation of voice hearing and really well done. So I want more of that so that my daughter could go, Mummy, I have that too. And I can go, oh, okay, let's, yeah. let's talk about it. What's it like? And we can just chat like it's because it's regular conversation, not the kind of... <gasps> oh, okay, this is a big conversation. Just, I want it to be just a conversation, a sensitive and caring conversation, but not with the intake of breath and the sense of othering that it mm. is. And I want to be able to work out with her, is it an issue? What can we do about it? What's going on around it? And hope that, you know, it's not about whether my daughter or other children continue hearing voices or not. It's about if there's some stuff going on that's making life really hard for them, I want to deal with it. Yeah, it's as basic as that. And if they continue to hear voices after we've dealt with the stuff, then yeah, fair enough, that's a difference. Or the voices might just go because they might not be needed anymore. I'm really interested in the idea of neurodiversity as well. And I do wonder whether if I hadn't gone through trauma, would I still be a voice hearer? And maybe I would. I just wouldn't have so much, so, so many traumatised voices. <laughs> yeah, an idea of them serving a function. Like they, they might not have so many functions to serve. Yeah. I knew one, one lady who, after she went through a lot of processing of the stuff that happened to her voices, went from being very critical to just asking her if she wanted a cup of tea. Unfortunately, they didn't make the tea for her. <laughs> if only. It's been really, really good talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. It was a really interesting conversation. Not a problem. It's good to chat with you guys. Thanks for listening to Notes on the Mind. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, please subscribe to the podcast, share it with others, and let us know your thoughts by tweeting us at notesonthemind underscore. Until our next episode, goodbye and look after yourself.